Welcome back to Path to Glory, the Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. My name is Aman Kusro, and I am joined by my co-host and fellow wargamer, Zach Kashetta, also known as Requisite. What's up, my dude? I'm having a great day. It is the day after the far drop, or the far and the fact drop, and I have let Underworlds consume my life for about 24 hours now. Yeah, funny story, actually, and I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't realize the documents had dropped until well later in the day, and I just had seen so many notifications in Discord, but I actually had quite a, a busy Friday, and then I jump on in the evening just to catch up a little bit. I was like, why is everything so active right now? It's like, did I miss something? And then I go into our private Path to Glory chat, and you guys are like discussing things. And then I saw Val's message in our general chat. And then I just was like, wow. And my wife's like, what are you doing? I was like, I need 10 minutes, babe. Please. <laughs> you know, I was lucky. I had, the, I had taken the week after Christmas off work because I had PTO that wasn't going to roll over. And I was like, ah, you know, I'll spend the day. I'll play some practice games on Vassal. I'll maybe do a little painting. And then I just like, I dropped my daughter off at daycare and I was like, this is my next couple hours. I'm just sitting here by myself in a quiet house, reading through these and thinking about it. It was a good day. Wild. Yeah. So really happy it dropped. And I know the community is as well, because there's a lot of good changes in here. Some of them, I think I agree with most things. There's some things I am curious on. I'm not sure if mm -hmm. I necessarily disagree with anything perhaps, but we'll get into that discussion which is going to be very exciting. But before we do that, we do want to give a quick shout out and thanks to all of our listeners and our patrons and our supporters. Thank you so much for supporting Path to Glory. 2023 has been a very interesting year in that. Actually, in its 20s, I wasn't planning on dropping another episode before the start of the new year, but here we are <laughs> doing a, I suppose, emergency quotations episode to get it out to you as soon as possible. But what's curious is that 2022 was a great year for Path of Glory. We had amazing stats, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of that you know, in our next episode where we'll do kind of a yearly recap to start the year off and talk about what we want to do with the year. But what I found fascinating is despite the fact that we dropped less episodes this year than last year, we had more listens. I think that speaks to quality. Thank you guys for listening, and I hope you really enjoy all four of our main members. Yeah, we're going to have another episode talking about the year in review, and we'll talk about more about it then. Yes, absolutely. Very grateful for Mark and George for their additions. I think, you know, we're trying to cater to this standard of excellence. And, you know, when you see excellence, you either mimic it or if you can't beat them, you join them, right? So in this case, you recruit them. And I thought when Mark and George were doing from a technical level and what Mark specifically was doing from a content perspective was just amazing. And it's a win win for everyone, right? Someone mentioned earlier this year, and actually, I've got it a couple of times now where. You know, Path of Glory is the most recognizable brand in Underworlds. And that was a lot of hard work. And I give a lot of credit to Jonathan for us putting in those consistent hours. But the fact that we can now create a platform for other people, whether they want to be on the podcast or not, and get their content into the faces of more and more people while also further enhancing our show and our brand and building friends along the way and having great conversations. Like, I like all you guys. I sent all you guys Christmas cards, you know, and it's, it's cool to just have a, a squad within your hobby where... You can just kind of hang out and build each other up and compete with one another internally as well as you know with all the other great content creators there externally as well. So I think for me, that's been the most interesting and exciting aspect of adding Mark and George, but also a rising tide lifts all ships, right? And that's kind of the mentality we've had with Path to Glory this year. And also with our, you know, and I say this in air quotes, the other competing content, if you will, 
you know, we're all on the same page and we all just quality has improved in under, Warhammer Underworlds. And it's been really nice to see that. Yeah. I mean, other other content creators are in a way competitors, but it's nice to see Underworlds get more content and quality content. We appreciate other people putting it out. But like, I appreciate, you know, just Amon, what you've done before I came on, because I kind of came on partway through and you'd already built this brand up. It was lovely to join and be part of it and now we got more people on and i'm looking forward to 2024 man i think it's going to be a a marked year for underworlds i think it's going to be great yeah i'll say hard to top 2023 for me uh, from a personal perspective (laughs) well sure yeah it's a big one but i am going to comment on the fact that you know when you joined first of all thank you for your kind words but honestly i think from the day you joined content got even better right same with mark same with george so i think super grateful for the team and the camaraderie we have and while I do miss Jonathan dearly, I think he'd be very happy to know that we've taken the brand to another level. And I now have three Jonathans versus one. Yeah, and it's only going to get better. I think whether we bring in more people or we just stick with the people we got, we've got a really good thing going here and it's great. Well, to avoid belaboring the point any further and perhaps getting even a little sappy, let's mm-hmm. move to our first segment here, which is Path the Worlds. Now, I want to make a quick note on this. Hansa Skipala, who you may have seen or read that name on the discords, has created a global document where members from the global community can add qualifying events for the World Championships of Warhammer, specifically Warhammer Underworlds. So I have been asked to be the North American representative, so I will be inputting events into this document. But also, it's nice because it helps us with our Path the World segment where we were originally planning on just covering events in North America, but due to Hans's great idea and collaboration in this project, we'll be talking about all global events that offer tickets as they come. So at the moment, there's only four, and they all happen to be in North America, but there will be more events that are posted, and we'll share that. But to reiterate very quickly, Las Vegas Open, end of January, Grand Cherokee Open, end of February, Adepticon, end of March, and the Nova Open, end of August. That's for 2024. Check that out. Look into those events. They all will have golden tickets. There are other events, I'm sure, that are being approved right now or have yet to be announced, but I'm very confident this list will grow. Yeah, and it's great to have international events on here as well. I know we're all North American players, obviously. We're all USA players. Underworlds is a global community, and I know we have global listeners, and we love you guys too. We want you to be able to know your events and we'll get you any information we get and hopefully you can go and qualify and we'll see you at worlds absolutely yeah we'll see you at worlds mark and i have already qualified due to our top eight performance so i'm really hoping to see more and more people from the global community get those seats beat back some of those canadians for u.s seats maybe even mexican seats and then of course i need you and george to get there as well yeah working on it Alrighty, so I know that we said we're going to do Sleeve It or Leave It or Inspiration Strikes, but this is an unplanned episode, so we are going to be skipping that, and we'll be starting that in the new year, which I suppose this episode will drop in the new year. So Warhammer Underworlds decided to drop a big update for the end of the year on the 29th of December. The core rules were updated, the relic format rules were updated, there is an errata, there is a designer's commentary for this season and previous seasons. Four documents that we'll be going over today. We're going to start with the designer's commentary for the Death Gorge season. Zach, take us away. All right. 
So format of this, we're just going to kind of go through some of this stuff, especially this FAQ section should be pretty straightforward. But if we have things and thoughts about these, we'll talk about it. Otherwise, let's go through this pretty briskly. Current season FAQ. Serenize razors. Sereny? Sereny? Still don't know how to pronounce that. Do blocked hexes prevent a friendly hammer tide ability from affecting enemy fighters? No. We all pretty much knew this. Can I use the hammer tide ability if the line drawn will not enter a hex occupied by an enemy fighter? No. There's a little bit of interest here because I think some people were just kind of firing off hammer tide to score the card for making hammer tide actions, but makes a lot of sense. Question, when the line drawn for hammer tide ability enters a hex occupied by an enemy fighter, can the player whose turn it is decide the order in which the enemy fighter is dealt damage and or staggered? Yes. I'm not sure in which situations it would matter the order that that happens, but there you go. Yeah, interesting changes here. I don't think this requires much discussion. I think for the first part here, you're clarifying the rules as written. Maybe there is some confusion with how attack actions or spells work and they require line of sight, but this ability specifically does not require line of sight, but it's important to have that clarity. Now for the second part here, I guess it's fine. I guess the idea behind the ruling is that his ability is not, I guess, fully resolved. If you cannot resolve the damage plus stagger, I don't know if that's necessarily required and it maybe seems a little, I don't want to say incorrect, but I, I would, I guess I appreciate the answer because I suppose it is confusing when you look at it, particularly in this lens. Mm. Either way, I guess you draw the line first. I don't know. I don't yeah. have specific thoughts on that. I, I haven't played as or against them enough to know like the idiosyncrasies of like why these things may matter. But like you said, I think this is just clarifying rules as written. It makes a lot of sense. I think this third question about order of dealt damage or staggered, I think this is supposed to clarify like whether you can use it against somebody who can't be staggered or not, but maybe they could have worded it to make that a little bit more clear. But perhaps our listeners who are more intimately familiar with the razors can have some comments for us. Leave some comments on our episodes. I think it's really interesting, actually, because the more that you look into it, perhaps the ability wouldn't be fully resolved in the event that the damage killed the fighter since they wouldn't be able to get staggered while out of action. That could be for sure. And, you know, because the game has moved very quickly towards things being fully resolved, maybe there's concern that it wouldn't be fully resolved. Yeah, but hopefully this clarifies things for people who play Razors. I think it's I think it's a very reasonable change. And then we just have an FAQ for one of their cards. This is for Spiteful Riptide. Can I play this card if each friendly fighter is uninspired? The answer is yes. I know specifically Razors have a number of cards that say only do this for inspired fighters or only do this for uninspired fighters. Spiteful Riptide says inspired friendly fighters have the flying trait after a friendly fighter's move action. Stagger each enemy fighter whose hex that fighter moved through. This effect persists till the end of the round. So basically this says you can play it if they're uninspired and then it will only take effect when they become inspired which is good. That's a fine change. Maybe you just want to get out of your hand. Maybe you want to play it so you don't discard it later for another effect or something like that. Very reasonable. Then we're going to go on to the Thricefold Discord. So our Slanesh team got a couple FAQs here. First, generic FAQ. When a fighter makes the resist action for a false gift upgrade, do they only break one of their false gift upgrades? Yes. There is some confusion over whether the resist action lets you just break all of them can't do it you got to make the resist action three times which is pretty wild false gifts are very good i agree false gifts are very good i think this is also quite 
straightforward. Both this interpretation and the previous one are fairly straightforward. Rules as written. I appreciate adding additional clarity. Yes. Vision of wealth is a temptation. So you pick an opponent with one or more unspent glory points. That player picks one. You push a fighter up the two hex towards the nearest objective token. Or that player spends one glory point. Yes. So the question is, who decides how many hexes a fighter is pushed by this gambit? The person who played the card. So the Slanesh player, or I guess in the case of Amir, the person who played the card, will get to decide how many hexes. So I guess there was some confusion over, I choose the fighter, do I also choose the amount of hexes? No. I think the wording is fairly straightforward here. Again, its rules is written, and it's mm-hmm. quite clear. I mean, I guess the question probably ended up a lot in their inbox, so it's good to have these answered. It, yeah, it does show that they're reading, which is nice. Next, we've got well-earned rest. This is a temptation. It says, this is the one where they can either remove move and stagger tokens from Slanesh fighters, or you give an opponent a charge token. Question, I play this card. Can my opponent pick the second option if no fighters have the move and or charge tokens? Answer, yes. That is a little disappointing. I think well-earned rest loses a lot of value because the assumption was before that if there were no move or stagger tokens, they couldn't pick that option and you would just always give out a charge token. Now, your opponent's just never going to let you give a charge token. You know, So I don't think this card sees a lot of play per this FAQ. Yeah, it's very interesting in the wording here. There is a update in the universal FAQ that clarifies what the phrasing up to means, which we'll get to. But I think the phrase you can and up to in the language shared here is pretty important because zero counts as up to two, right? So yeah. unfortunate, but a, I suppose, victim of the wording used on this card. Yeah, victim of its own success. Words of praise, this is another temptation. Basically, this is one where you, the person playing the card, picks a enemy fighter. The opponent chooses whether it gets pushed two hexes towards a fighter in your warband, or that fighter cannot be activated until the end of the round, which is very powerful. FAQ, I play this card. The last surviving enemy fighter is adjacent to my last surviving friendly fighter, or I have no surviving friendly fighters. Can my opponent pick the first option, thereby forcing me to push the chosen fighter zero hexes and resulting in the card having little effect? Answer, no, a fighter cannot be pushed zero hexes. I think that there's, to me, there's a little bit of confusion between these because it's like, well-earned rest, yeah, you can remove up to zero tokens, but here you cannot push up to zero hexes. I guess that's made clear by many other times in the text we say push cannot end in the same hex it started in push cannot be zero etc etc that's pretty well clarified so this seems clear to me i think words of praise faq makes a lot of sense i think just comparing the two faqs is a little bit funny yeah i think the general confusion and challenge around interpreting how these temptation cards work is that includes your opponent and there's a there's choice right right and so i think players are just looking for absolute answers. And, you know, I think Underworld is a game where gotchas can happen. And so how do we avoid gotchas by fully understanding how these games work, and these cards specifically, rather? But the rulebook straight up says if a fighter is pushed, zero hexes, they're not considered to be pushed. I think another case of additional clarity is great. Yeah, and there's no such similar wording saying if it tells you to remove a token and no token is removed, it's not considered completed. So maybe that's what the difference here is. Either way, it's very clear now we have an FAQ, so those cards will be evaluated thusly. 
Next, we've got Icon of Excess. This is a spell action upgrade that lets you cast a spell, do stuff with your fighters, but you deal a damage. So the question is, this card says deal one damage to this fighter when making the spell action. When is the damage dealt? Answer, before the casting roll is made. I think there were some questions of whether you dealt damage to yourself, whether you cast the spell or not. But yes, you do. So it is lost a little bit of value, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I think rules is written. It's it's supposed to be interpreted this way, but as the rulebook specifically states, you resolve the effects of cards in the order that they are written. But I understand why that there's confusion here, strictly because there are not very many spell actions that require you to do things prior to the skill being cast. So I completely empathize. Yeah. But yes, the spell action says when you're taking this action, you deal the damage. And then and if, cast, if cast, yes, then something else happens, right? But yeah. because... Wording has been inconsistent throughout the seasons. I can understand why there is confusion. Absolutely. So good FAQ. Like you said, rules is written. It is the way it worked, but people were interpreting different. Next, we've got Perfect Blade. This is one of the false gifts that we just talked about a little bit before. This is the one that you give a really good weapon to a fighter, but they don't count as having any other upgrades or attack actions. Question, does this upgrade prevent the fighter that has it from making gambit attack actions answer no so for instance things like void cursed assault making a point potentially in hexbane's hunters where it's a card that says make this attack action doesn't prevent you from making those because they're not on your fighter card which is what this prevents and next we've got song of corruption this is a upgrade that says enemy fighters within two hexes of this fighter support this fighter's attack actions other than scything attack actions if they are not the target of the attack action Basically turns enemies into allies for purposes of support. Question, does this upgrade prevent... for specifically attack actions. Yes, sorry, thank you. Does this upgrade prevent affected enemy fighters from supporting the defender? Answer, no. So basically, if a fighter is... If you've got three hexes adjacent to each other and there's two enemies and the person with this upgrade, both of you are getting supports, which is... Yeah, because technically the card doesn't say that you support yourself. So I think this is just trying to avoid... People who tend to be a little... Pedantic. Correct. And that's everything for the new Warbands current season. The only other Warband is Stab Lads, which aren't technically out yet and don't need any FAQs. So we have some universal cards, however. So we're going to go into those. Final Curse, Force of Frost. This is the spell reaction. It's a spell you cast when you die, and it can deal damage to the attacker who's attacking you. Yeah, it's one focus, two damage reaction. Yes, really good card. Question, can a friendly wizard attempt to cast Final Curse if their attacker has the Lucky Hex Beak Foot upgrade? Answer, no. So basically, if you couldn't deal that damage from a Gambit spell in general, you can't attempt to cast for purposes of like scoring cards and stuff. Yeah, you can't resolve a ping against a fighter who cannot be ping damaged. Exactly. Question, if a friendly wizard casts Final Curse and the caster suffers backlash, what happens? I find this one really interesting, actually. The damage dealt by the backlash takes the caster out of action and the spell fails. So you kind of die twice and the spell fizzles. I'm sure that if you go through rules as written and like step through how things are supposed to be resolved, this makes sense. That is not how I would have considered it to happen, but we have clarity on it. So that that's good. Aman, is this how you would have interpreted this card? No, actually, I wouldn't have. I think I would have just said like, the spell goes off because the spell went off. I die, but you also die. But I completely understand now that technically you're supposed to take the 
backlash damage immediately. And so I think there's just some strange sequencing things here because I suppose you must have already suffered enough damage to be taken out of action. So this means that the damage dealt by the backlash would also be sufficient to take you out of action. But in doing so, it creates this, I suppose, new out of action check immediately. Yeah, which that's then you kind take of what the I'm caster out of action. You know, actually, I must have been playing this wrong because I've had it previously happen where I've had spell either gambits or spell attack actions where the backlash killed me, and then I still resolve the damage because the spell had cast. Per this FAQ, I guess, like if you're casting, I don't know, freeze thaw finish or bath sauce avalanche or something, or well, I guess avalanche, like you would have to take two because you take the one for mint, but still. Any other spell where you would take backlash that would kill you wouldn't resolve per this same errata, I guess? Well, so the rulebook does state that a fighter taken out of action by backlash means that the spell is not cast. Oh, okay. Okay. That's that's so, then. I was playing that yeah. wrong then. Totally. And and that's why these FAQs exist, right? Is for people to just re reconfront themselves with the rules. But what I find interesting is that that extra damage is this weird window where you kill yourself again and because the rules state that you have now dealt enough damage that has taken you out of action because backlash will deal more damage to you right and you're already taken enough damage to be out of action yeah your fell fails yeah it's really interesting but it makes sense and i don't have like an issue with it it's just it's just no. funny as all yeah it, it is but it, it makes i suppose sense like you're dying and then you try to cast a spell but you miscast, so you just hurt yourself more as you're dying. Your brain explodes while you're dying. Something like that. That's a visual, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a Force of Frost card. Yes, yes. All, all these cards that we're going to talk about here in a second are Force of Frost. Thank you for clarifying that. Now we have two cards. Same Q&A for two cards. Freeze Thaw Finish, which is a spell where you place a blocked hex token and then deal a damage to the person adjacent to it. And ER is Frozen Bonds, where you place a feature token. I don't think they necessarily have to be block taxes. You place a feature token, and you give a move hex adjacent to a fighter adjacent to one of the block taxes. But here's the Q&A. Can the blocked hex token be placed in such a way to ensure that there are no enemy fighters visible to the caster? Answer, no. So this also has to do with prior FAQs and rules as written that state that when you cast a spell and you resolve the spell, it's from the caster and you need line of sight to any fighter that you choose. If you're dropping the block tax and the person you're trying to deal damage to or give a move token to is on the other side of it, you no longer have a legal target to damage or give a token to, and therefore the spell fizzles so you can't cast it. Or rather, you can't even attempt to cast it, technically. Which makes sense. And I think a lot of people were playing this right way, but again, it is very good to have that clarity. It is important to have clarity specifically on Yara's Frozen Bonds because the whole idea of that card is to block off opponents' charge lanes and make it difficult for them to get to you. And so, in fact, this happened at the World Championships where Cyril would often drop a block text in front of a Sarpon or a Domaton who's ready to make a charge hitting for three damage, right? And there are often times where it's like, you put the block text in front of me, I can't see you, you can't see me, and then it would resolve. And I suppose the way that the judges interpreted it, they never said that it couldn't work that way. And both judges were watching the final, and then you know they were watching bits and pieces of the two previous games we played. And I assumed it worked like that as well, but I think you're absolutely correct. 
And I'm glad they brought clarity to this one specifically because the card almost works counterintuitive to the way the ruling works. Because mm-hmm. the idea of the card is, aha, snow and ice, harder to get to me, right? I freeze right. you through magic. <laughs> but in this situation, I still have to see you to freeze you. And so I think it lowers the actually strength of Yara's frozen bonds in particular. I think freeze thought finish as well. Freeze thought finish actually doesn't really have much of an issue because it's still very playable. Yeah, freeze thaw. You're often just just doing it for the damage, and you're usually Correct. killing them with the damage. So the blocked, like you, placing the blocked, is important for purposes of blocking other fighters. But like that fighter in particular, it's like okay, we could be on the same side of the block because now you're dead. But yeah, ER's frozen bonds. I think loses a tinge of value with this reading of the wording, but is probably still a good card. I mean, it's a it's a good cast card, and giving out a move token is great. So next we have another force of frost card. This is Time Freeze. So Time Freeze is a card where you choose two of your fighters, they both get guard tokens, and then you have to make the pass action in your next activation step, and then in the following activation step, you can take two activations. So basically, delays you for a turn, but gives you two guard, two ice counters, and lets you double activate. So occasionally very powerful, but has downsides. I could do a whole episode on Time Freeze. If I play Time Freeze in the power step of my first turn, which means that Time Freeze will finish resolving during my third turn, do I still get a fourth turn as normal? Yes. I am not aware of any reading of Time Freeze that would indicate that you just don't get to do anything after it resolves, but it is good to know. Yeah, I think so. I've actually seen some confusion surrounding this card. Some people were arguing that you had already done four things for the round if you played it as written there. So turn one happens turn two you pass turn three in which you combine the two activations so it's like oh, oh you have your activations turns three and four. Oh, however as if you would, on turn three so on turn two you flip your activation tokens say pass and then on turn three you would technically flip two activation tokens in one activation i could see that but yeah yeah the biggest distinction here is that there's a difference between turns and activations yes so players get four turns in a round but each yes. consists of an activation step and a power step, plus the associated minor steps. So when you're taking two activations in the activation step, I suppose, of the turn three in the example we're using, it's still only your third turn. So you would still get your fourth turn as normal. Right. So, And that's clarified here in the next FAQ, which says, can you clarify how I take two activations in a single step? In the turn in which you would take two activations, you would take an activation play through the reaction step, inspire step, and surge step. After the stir- surge step, you immediately take another activation, followed by reaction, inspire, and surge, and then followed by the power step. And then the regular flow of play continues as normal. Yes, I think if you have read strictly through a steps of a turn, it's pretty clear, but that is a pretty dense section, so I understand why we want this clarity. I find it interesting because... I would say rules as written, an activation step also does not contain the minor reaction, inspire, and surge steps. Like if you look at the turn sequence diagram in the rulebook, technically does not work like this. I do understand that not including the reactions, the inspires, and the surge steps would be challenging and hard to understand. So I think they just FAQ'd that reactions, inspirations, and surges, those minor steps, are also part of an activation step. And if you look which, at the rear cover of the book, it actually says activation step, and then it has the minor things, and then the power step, and then it has the minor steps. 
So I guess it makes sense. I actually was playing it the other way because there are definitely like for specific warbands, there are inspiration windows that I was not counting as having triggered between activations, but I, I suppose you do. I think this is an example of rules of written wasn't cutting it or maybe was a little more stricter than they had hoped. So they went with rules as intended. And I think it actually boosts the power of time freeze, which is already situationally a very good card. But now, especially surges, I think is really good for it because you can take your first activation, potentially score a kill surge or a damage surge or whatever. And then your next activation, you now have a new card because you've drawn a new surge card or drawn a new end phase card that you could play towards. And it's cool. So I think it's a minor boost just by raw interpretation here. Then we have one final Force of Frost card. This is Armor of Ice. Armor of Ice is an upgrade that says your defense characteristic is two block and you cannot go on guard as long as you have an ice counter and then has an action to gain an ice counter. Question, if a fighter has the Armor of Ice upgrade and they are void cursed, what does that fighter's defense characteristic? Answer, both abilities set the characteristic of a fighter. So the modifier that most recently came into effect is the value used per the Death Gorge rulebook which makes sense. Absolutely. And I actually clarified this with the judges at the World Championship, and that is how we all interpreted the rule. Luckily, they had agreed on the interpretation, so I'm glad that this was clarified because I can definitely see the confusion here. And it was enough confusion for me to where I had to ask before the event, right? So yeah, totally makes sense. And then question, if a fighter has armor of ice and one or more ice counters and is then giving the disgusting appearance upgrade, is that fighter's defense characteristic three block? Answer, yes. Because setting a characteristic comes before modifiers. So if you have a plus one dice, like any of the dice, any of the abilities that give you plus one dice, you are three block, which is very good. So not much to say about that. That one is literally rules as written. I think it's important to just appreciate, now that we're almost done with this document, that they've actually taken their time to address all of the concerns for the current season. And I do appreciate that they have created a document specifically for Death Gourd, so it makes it easier for maybe people to access the information they're looking for, or maybe if this is their first season in the game. So while I do agree that a lot of these are rules as written, I do appreciate the fact that Underworlds has become a bit more wordy and a bit more particular in the way the game functions since its inception. So whether you're a new player or player returning, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad they're doing it. And I like that it, we have a new, the current document in previous, or current season and previous seasons, because as for longtime players, sometimes you know everything in the previous seasons, and then you just want a separate document for the new stuff as well, which is nice. Which brings us to our most recent plot card, which is the Breakneck Slaughter plot card. Question Who resolves the impetus ability first if I am the only player with a Breakneck Slaughter plot card and both friendly and enemy fighters have momentum counters? Answer, the players whose turn it is decides. I think that makes total sense. Question, a friendly fighter has two momentum counters and cannot be staggered. There are a variety of directions in which they could be pushed two hexes. They must be pushed to resolve the impetus ability, but there are also other directions which would result in them not being pushed. For instance, they're next to a blocked hex or an edge hex. Is my opponent obliged to place the scatter hex token in such a way that the fighter is then pushed the full two hexes if possible? Answer, Yes, since the fighter cannot be staggered and the impetus ability must be resolved, this is the only way to fully resolve the card. Straightforward. Makes sense. Question, how does my opponent resolve the impetus ability for a friendly fighter that has one or more momentum counters but cannot be pushed and cannot be staggered? 
Answer, remove that fighter's momentum counters and nothing else happens. Some niche edge cases there. I think the confusion is probably around the word cannot. So just make sure you can do what you can do and you can't do what you can't do. That's what it should be. I mean, that's what it is for basically everything. Question, how does my opponent resolve the impetus ability for a friendly fighter that has more momentum counters than they can be pushed in hexes in any direction, but cannot be staggered? Answer, the opponent is free to pick the direction for the push, provided the fighter can be pushed at least one hex, then remove that fighter's momentum counters and nothing else happens. So we've covered a lot of the different things. Basically, there's some weirdness when you cannot be staggered, but basically resolve it to the most of its ability. And then if you can't be staggered, you can't be staggered, is what it is. I do think that this FAQ is a strange one because we just talked about it's a bit inconsistent. I think technically it would be more consistent to say you couldn't push this fighter in question since nowhere you can push the fighter. I think the intention here is saying that like you have to do as written, but if you can't do it as written because of not being able to be staggered or not being able to be pushed, you just do as much as possible, which is not technically rules as written because usually if you can't do everything you do nothing impetus is a little bit different i guess because because it it is and it's a plot card instead of a gambit card and maybe i don't but it is you're right that is slightly different than other interpretations of similar rules either way we have another question after the reaction step that follows an activation step do I resolve the impetus ability for each fighter that has one or more momentum counters? Yes, it's not just one because it's not really a reaction. It's just a, a thing that happens. And question, after the reaction step, the fouls and activation step, there are 12, fi- 12 fighters that each have one or more momentum counters. I don't know how you get here, but you have. After resolving the impetus ability and having pushed or staggered all 12 fighters, how many times have I resolved the impetus ability I'm not sure if this was ever rules as written. There are some people who are have interpreted this differently, let us say. There are certain cards. There's a, at least one surge that says, you know, score this when impetus ability is resolved a third or subsequent time. And there was, you kind of assumed that if there were like three fighters with impetus or with momentum counters on them at the same time and you did all of them, it would count as three times that you resolved impetus. But instead, now it is just once. So you have to resolve impetus in three different turns in order to score that card, which is interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it makes sense to me. And the best, I really thought about best way you could describe this card, but think about center of retention, right? Sure. Like, you can't say that center of retention went off six times if you push six fighters. You would resolve yeah. it once by pushing six fighters. Yeah, it's, now, six, it's six pushes, but one effect holistic thing yes effect correct like so each push is still resolved independently and has its own reaction window technically rules is written this is correct i agree then we got a couple cards from breakneck slaughter first of which is eager for the fight this is an objective that says end of round each fighter has one or more charge tokens and or is within two hexes of one or more enemy fighters can i score this if some fighters have charge tokens and some fighters have no charge tokens provided the ones with no charge tokens are within two hexes of enemy fighters. Yes, this is consistent with other objectives we've seen that have similar wording, just an FAQ to make to say, yes, it is in line with all those other types of cards. I wouldn't even say it's an FAQ. Like, I mean, even the next one, Need for Speed, can I score this? There are two surviving friendly fighters that each have one or more move tokens and two mm-hmm. other surviving friendly fighters that each have one charge token? The answer is again, yes. There may be confusion on and or, but because it says and or, you can mix and match 
to do whatever you need to do to score the card. Yes. So this is just this is just read the card. <laughs> yeah, I think people do have confusion with Andor because we've had similar objectives FAQ'd in the same way in the past. But again, again, good good to just have it there. That's it for cards. Now we're going to go to an abilities section here. Uh, question to resolve certain abilities, my opponent and I are required to push, choose, or pick up to a certain value of things such as fighters, cards, or a number of hexes. When can that value be zero? So here's kind of like the big holistic answer to this question. Answer. When required by a card to do up to a value, the value can be zero unless the card requires you to push a fighter. In this case, the minimum value is one since a fighter that is pushed cannot end the push in the same hex they started in during the push. Death Gorge Rulebook, page 31. And therefore, pushing a fighter zero hexes is impossible. So basically, this is saying up to can include zero, but pushing specifically forbids you from ending the push in the same hex you started in. Therefore, while like pushing zero is technically an option in one sense of understanding, it is illegal due to the wording on push specifically. Yeah. So, again, you cannot be pushed if you, you cannot be pushed zero hexes. Yes, exactly. But any other time where it chooses up to zero is actually an option. So it's good. We finally have a very specific answer to that question, which should cover a lot of things in the future. Hopefully. Agreed. Question, when do I determine if an ability can be resolved and therefore be used? Answer, at the time you'd use that ability, if there's a way in which the ability could be resolved, the ability can be used. Designer's note, in practical terms, this will usually be while a gambit is in your hand and you are trying to decide if it can be played or before a fighter activates and uses an ability of some kind. Most of the time, this won't be consideration, but sometimes abilities can become impossible to resolve while resolving them, so this timing is important. Basically, this is just saying, like, if I can legally do something when I declare it, can I do it? Yes. But if it somehow becomes illegal during the activation due to reactions or opponents' gambits or something like that, then it stops being. Then you don't like have to rewind everything. You still can have declared it, even though it becomes illegal later on. And as a quick follow up, we'll do the, just the next question. Question: An ability could have been resolved when it would have been used while following directions for that ability. It becomes impossible to resolve. What happens? Answer, if there are no further directions for the ability, the ability is resolved. If there are further directions for that ability, then they must be followed as normal, after which the ability is resolved. For example, I use Itchit's Book of Woe ability, and after rolling for multiple fighters in the same territory as Itchit, the only fighter that would be dealt damage who cannot is one who cannot be dealt precisely one damage. There are no further directions for the ability, so the ability is resolved, and in this case has no effect. So basically saying it's still considered to be resolved even if you do nothing as long as at the start of it it was legal to be used when you declared use of the action. I like this interpretation. I think in the past we have had a number of questions. They're usually pretty edge case questions. They're usually pretty niche situations where it's like, you know, my opponent reacted and now I can't do this. And does it, does it fizzle? Does it still count as an action? Does it still count as being resolved, et cetera, et cetera? Now we just have a clear answer that says if you could do it at the start of it, it's resolved, even if something goes haywire during it, which is good. I like that. Yeah, I have no additional thoughts. I appreciate the thoroughness of these answers. Yes, I like that these are very, very thought out. And then we have one that's much shorter. Question, is Objective 5 synonymous with Objective Token with a value of 5? 
Yes. Good question and answer. Block Texas. Can I move or place a Block Tex token in a hex that contains a fighter? No, because that's illegal. Read the rules. Yes. If I activate a fighter with one or more charge tokens that is adjacent to two or more enemy fighters, can that fighter make a scything attack action? No, because when you have a charge token, you can't make super actions, and scything is a super action. I believe you can still use the scything attack as long as it only targets one fighter, but I may be incorrect about that. Well, the interesting thing about the wording, so scything keyword in the rulebook actually is not written as being optional. So if you're using an attack with the keyword, you must make an attack against each possible target. So when referencing this particular question, you would need to attack each adjacent fighter, which you cannot do since you do not activate a fighter with a charge token, as you just mentioned. Mm. And they can't make a super action, but scything is not optional. I believe it doesn't count as a super action if there's only one legal target. Like if you make a scythe, if you make an attack that has a scything keyword and there's only one person adjacent to you, I don't think it counts as a super action. But I could be mistaken about that. It's actually the question right above this. If I activate a fighter with one or more charge tokens, that is Jason to just one enemy fighter. Can can that fighter make it? Yes. Okay. So good to know. But yes, it is. Now we have the opposite answer as well. Question, how do attack actions with scything and combo work? If a fighter that has an attack action scything and combo, and they have another attack action that can be made as a reaction to an attack action with combo, they can make that reaction in each reaction step that follows each action made as part of the scything super action. So if you have scything, combo attack, and a reaction to combo attack, and you have three targets, you are technically making six attacks, and that is cool and crazy if you can set it up. Yes, I don't believe there's very many instances where this can actually pop up, at least not in Nemesis. I imagine any sort of combo-focused warband with Mighty Swing, probably. Yeah, I think that's the main main thing for it. Salvage, can I salvage a power card in any power step? Yes, obviously. Can a fighter be pushed by scatter and that push in the hex they started the push in? Yes, this is an exception to the rule that states a fighter cannot end a push in the hex they started the push in. I assume this is because you don't choose the direction that you are being pushed when you scatter, and technically you will end up with situations where you literally can't move. Absolutely. Correct. And that brings us to the end of this document. So, Aman, now we have the previous season's designer's commentary. Would you like to take it away? I would. So we're going to start with Ephilim's Pandemonium. When Ephilim makes the fire of change attack, if there are friendly fighters adjacent to the target that would have no wound counters, am I obliged to deal damage to those fighters if I use the reaction on the fires of change attack action? Yes. I think this is fairly straightforward. Most people probably played it this way. But since you cannot heal an unwounded fighter, you must damage them in this instance as using this particular reaction requires you to resolve it for each fighter adjacent to the target. Mm. I think it's pretty rare that you'll end up with this kind of situation, but good to know regardless. Absolutely. Moving on to Skabik's Plague Pack, what is the timing for scoring the second condition of useful distraction? Answer, immediately after the attack action that targeted that minion ends. I think this is probably just for niche scenarios where scything attack actions are probably a thing. Oh, but sure. Yeah. Makes, pr- makes it pretty straightforward. I like it. Moving on to the Headsman's Curse. In which reaction step can I use the Blade Bound reaction? Answer In the reaction step that follows step six of the combat sequence, check if the target is out of action, if the target was taken out of action in that step. So, clarifies rules as written. I think totally fine. I think the only thing here is that. 
this clarifies that if you take a fighter out of action, because it's after the out of action step, they're not removed yet. So you can't res in the hex that they were in when you killed them, I believe. Straightforward regardless. Moving on to universal cards, we have inconstant predictions from Paths of Prophecy. If there are only two surviving fighters when I play this card, can I choose both of those fighters to have one guard token and stagger no other friendly fighters? The answer is no. This makes total sense because you cannot fully resolve the card, so you would have to stagger at least one fighter. Yeah, it's choose up to two, so you would have to choose one to guard and stagger the other. You couldn't just guard both. Correct. Now we move on to Void Cursed Thralls. Can Void Cursed Fighters make the resist action on false gift upgrades from the Thricefold Discord? And the answer is no. Because it specifically tells you what actions you can take. Yeah. I think it makes sense, though, given the fact that VCT is pretty popular now and Thricefold Discord are one of the new Starter War bands, right? Involuntary Interdiction, another card from Void Cursed Thralls. Can I score this objective during an enemy fighter's attack action? in which I played Reshaping Demise with the effect of Reshaping Demise made the enemy attacker Void Cursed? Answer is yes. I believe it was already being played this way. Pretty clear rules as written. Moving on to Toxic Terrors, Mass Poisoning. Can I score this objective if a fighter with any poison upgrades makes two successful attack actions in the same phase, but did not have any poison upgrades for the first of those attack actions? Yes. I, I think there was some unclarity about that but it's good to it's good for that one to be cleared up correct so it requires a fighter with one or more poison upgrades to make their second or subsequent attack action in the round and i suppose this is different notably from carve a path where you needed to be the leader at the time of each attack so it's a small distinction i suppose but enough that the wording doesn't acknowledge a particular condition to be met for the first attack action whereas cards like carve a path do mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. I mean, it the leader thing was a little bit funny, but yes, I, I agree. I think that is exactly how it's played. No safe ground from Toxic Terrors. When I play no safe ground, can I pick a fighter that is already staggered? Yes. When I play no safe ground, can I pick a fighter that cannot be staggered? No. Yeah, nothing prevents you from getting staggered multiple times, so it makes a lot of sense. Correct. And I think both rulings are consistent with other rulings because of the whole concept of fully resolving a card. Moving on to Grincrack's Loon Court. If I make an attack action that has the Nashan ability, when does that ability come into effect? Answer, after the determined success step, if the attack resulted in a critical hit. See critical abilities in the rulebook. Interesting because it can mean you can like kill a one wound upgrade before the attack is fully resolved, which means that like the attack takes them out of action instead of the upgrade being broken taking them out of action. So there's like a slight timing thing there. But yes, very good. Absolutely. We're moving on to Griselle's Aranai. If Rateria makes an attack action with Stagger and the damage from that attack action takes the target out of action, does that attack action still stagger the target? And can she therefore inspire? The answer is no to both. And I assume that this is probably because the Stagger token is granted after the attack action is resolved and because the fighter is already out of action when the attack is resolved, that fighter cannot be staggered. Yeah, that would make sense. Moving on to Fearsome Fortress plot card. When I place the available feature token during the setup, what type of tokens do I place? Place an available feature token from the Death Court set. Yep, no placing down a stagger token. Yeah, just future-proofing because this is from the Narwood box, so it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Price of victory. 
If an enemy fighter uses the price of victory reaction, this is for Hexbanes. Price of victory is the reaction that any hunter can make when another hunter dies to either remove a charge token or give an upgrade. Correct. Can I force my opponent to take an upgrade from my hand that can be given to an enemy fighter, such as singular reshaping or one of the thricefold discord false gifts? The answer is no. That is wild. I suppose that someone even tried that. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, it is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the reaction specifically states that you take an upgrade from your hand, and because it's your fighter, it's your hand. So the player who owns that warband. But I, I appreciate someone's attempt at some rules finagling, for sure. <laughs> if a fighter uses the price of victory reaction, can I use that reaction to give an enemy fighter the singular reshaping upgrade? Yes. So you can't do it to your opponent's reaction, but if you are, for instance, playing Void Curse Thrall Hexbanes, you can just be like, oh, you killed Bridget here. One of your guys is Void Cursed, which is pretty funny. Yeah, it's cool. And I think it's specifically because it says you may give this to your opponent, right? So you can give it to yourself and then, oh, but you can give it to your opponent as well. All right, I'll just give it to you. (laughs) Oh, man, that deck is so crazy. Yeah, rounding out really quickly the previous seasons. I know we're flying through these, but they don't require too much conversation. Call of Blood. From whose perspective are friendly and enemy fighters determined for the purposes of resolving this card? Enemy fighters are determined from the perspective of each chosen fighter immediately before they are pushed. That's good to know because you didn't know if it was friendly or enemy based on who was playing the card. So now it's just from the perspective of the model. So moving on to Crimson Court, if Gorath successfully casts a Vile Transference and an enemy fighter is given a wound counter, has that enemy fighter been dealt damage? Yes. I think this is a fairly logical conclusion. Giving somebody a wound counter is the same as wounding them, right? Like, I think it's just because the wording is different and there's no precedent for something like this, so I appreciate them setting the precedent. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Mad Mob. Do I gain the primacy token if a friendly Daco Sharpsticker makes a charge super action onto an objective in enemy territory? If there is an enemy fighter within two hexes of him after the move action, but not after the attack action. No. I don't know I who's playing it sense. that way. Yeah, I, it, all, it said move action specifically, so yeah. I think there's confusion with the way super action works, but because a super action is consisting of multiple actions, including the move action, and the card specifically states the move action, I think right. it totally makes sense. But I can see why people maybe thought it was interpreted differently. So again, that concludes the previous season's document. I think it totally makes sense. I think it's totally fair. A lot of these are great quality of life improvements. A lot of these are just actually providing a lot of clarification. And what I really like about this is, you know, I dubbed the last update or maybe the one previously as curbing the excess. I think this is just providing clarity and that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the last one in this document, right? Correct. So now we'll move on to the rules update, Zach. This is the rules update for Death Gorge. In the reactions diagram, page 49, add a reaction window icon following this power card is resolved and gambit spells resolved. We all kind of knew it was there. It's just kind of updating it. Yeah, it was not printed, but we knew. Yeah, exactly. It was, I think it was printed and then not printed. So they just put it back in, I think. Yeah. Or maybe in different locations, something like that. Yeah. Objective card types change the fourth and fifth sentences under search objective cards in the search step to read on page 50, page 50 being the appendix, actually. When the condition on a surge card is met, player may reveal that card. Once revealed, they will score that card in the next surge step. Adding may here kind of makes it so you don't necessarily have to score surge cards if you don't want to. Interesting. So I actually took a deep dive with this one, and I tried to see why this question was asked. 
So we know that end phases are technically optional to score. Technically, surges are not optional. But now they are? Well, your hand is hidden information, right? Yes. So you never know when your opponent should have technically already scored a surge card or not. We used Carbapath as an example earlier, but I think it's a great card for this specific example. Technically, if you make a mistake or you're not being clear with your opponent, you might have held it after meeting the one glory condition to try to score it for two. And your opponent technically would have never known. So to remove that, I suppose, remove the gray area in which someone could be doing this maliciously. I think it makes sense that they can choose when they score the card. Yeah, anytime there's hidden information, compulsory actions become a little weird. Yeah, it's just removing the feels bad. I like it personally. Oh, I think it's great actually. I I actually like the idea of hiding it or like, you know, specifically for stuff like Carpet Path being like, do I score it now? Do I hold on to it to see if I could score it again later? That sort of thing. I think it's great. Next, we've got uh, a bunch of stuff from Breakneck Slaughter, and I'm going to kind of condense these because they're all basically the same. Headlong Sprinter, Living Hurricane, and Moving Mark. The wording on these is all changing to say after the first move action because they all give you momentum counters after a move action. Now it's saying after the first move action in an activation step, give them however many move counters the card gives you. This is basically to curb weird niche situations where you get to make multiple move actions in the same activation step, and people were getting way more momentum counters than they needed to, or they really should have been getting in that situation. Yes, there's actually this really funny interaction where there's this infinite combo you can do with the Cunning Crew and Hurricane Darts, where you can loop fighters around Manok, thereby accumulating infinite momentum counters, therefore getting to make an infinite dice attack with the darts. Yes. Infinity dice, infinity move counters. I hope you brought enough move counters in your box to do it. Yeah. So that is the only time I've seen it because that happened. I think I was playing George or something and we like, wait, is this a thing? And then it was. And we were like, ah. So it's very interesting for sure. Yeah. So those are all consolidated. Now we get to one of the big ones. Abath Soth's Avalanche from Force of Frost. Change this card to read as follows. Gambit spell channel, which it currently is. If cast, remove one ice counter from this fighter, then deal one damage to each fighter in the same territory as the caster, then place up to one available feature token and empty hex in their territory. So basically it's exactly the same, except now it costs not only the spell action in the card, but also costs a ice counter to use. Amon, as someone who ran this at Worlds, what do you think about this change? I think this is a great change, Zach. I think a lot of people have in some cases, rightfully so, really made Avalanche sound like this ultimate boogeyman card. And it can be, right? There are some examples where it can just be a really big feels bad for your opponent. I think the card is fine when used in the late game. And so in my experience, I was never running into enemy territory and trying to cast the spell with one dice. I get that there is a 75% chance that it'll go off, but that doesn't work for me. I can't even cast spells on two magic dice. (laughs) Yeah. So as evidenced by, I wish the finals was recorded, man. I cast almost nothing in both those games. But what I really like about this change in particular, and this is something that I was really glad to see, was that you have this wonderful counter called ice counters in the deck, but nobody's, there's no like resource. They're, they're just, can I put them on a fighter? They activate other cards and then I can score a big card at the end. But now what happens is, A, it's 
Delo- delays how quickly you can play the card, which is again was the biggest feel bad for most people. It makes it to where it's fairly predictable on who's going to cast the spell, right? So if you see an ice counter go down on a fighter, if there is a moment in which you can perhaps stop it from occurring, or you have a turn to respond, maybe you can kill that fighter or push them further out of position, limit their movement, etc., hinder their skill casting ability. And this also ties in directly to the fact that as someone who recently played the deck in a very long event, oftentimes when I was putting ice counters on a fighter, I was just stacking them on the same fighter so that I could score the end phase as well for two glory. Now it's like, is it worth casting the spell and perhaps stopping myself from scoring that card in an end phase earlier than I want to? Obviously, there's going to be scenarios where everything just lines up great and it doesn't matter, but I just think it makes the whole experience more thoughtful, more interesting, and the biggest feel bad for people is losing fighters early. I still think there's a lot of cards that give you ice counters. There's a gambit that just gives you an ice counter. So I think maybe you just have to be a little smarter with your deck building. There is more of a choice, and I personally appreciate that. And I think it's an excellent change. And this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted the incorporation of ice counters into the deck. And I'm really glad that they decided to go with this route. Yeah, in Nemesis, like you said, I think it's very solid. I think it basically removes the card from championship play because while wizards were bringing this in championship, they probably were not also bringing a lot of ice counter generators in that deck because in championship, you don't have to stick to one nemesis deck. So why would you bring falling shards? It's now you might bring it to power this, but that's a two card combo. It's not great. So yeah, it's, it is a solid little change. And I think it, like you said, all, all it does is really remove that early game feels bad of like, I've drawn this in round one, I charge into enemy territory and drop it, and then, you know, you're playing a five-man warband, I've deal- dealt five damage for, you know, a single spell cast. It's way, way, way harder to set up nowadays, so I think that is very, very good. So we will move on. Now we have Ephilim's Pandemonium. I have a big change here. Ephilim's Pandemonium plot card. This is the change sequence. If you don't know what that is, please listen to our episode on Ephilim's Pandemonium because it's very complicated. The second step, pick an opponent. The opponent chooses a surviving changer from your warband that has not been chosen this round. Stagger the chosen changer. Change point four to read. Pick an opponent. The opponent choosing a surviving changer from your warband that has not been pushed this round. Push the chosen changer one hex. This is a massive change as somebody who has played a good deal of Pandemonium, even past the nerf to like Ephilim's power level thing, needing two hexes instead of three. Your opponent choosing what happens on step two really makes the change sequence something that you have to plan way, way, way harder around and can be really detrimental, especially in rounds two and three. Per rules is written here in the document, despite your opponent choosing which changer to push, you still push them one hex. There are only four changers, so if they're choosing a changer to push, it's just going to be the last one, so you still push it, so this change doesn't really do anything. But the stagger change is actually very, very important and will really change how Ephilim plays and sets up in early and later phases of the game. Yeah, I think the changes, maybe at first glance, are, especially if you're a fan of the Pandemonium, can be perceived as quite harsh. But you really have to take a look at a macro perspective to probably understand the reasoning behind this. If you look at the previous tournament season or almost every single event that was a qualifier event, then you look at Worlds, they either won or podiumed in every single event. They got second and third at Worlds. Obviously, they were doing really well. 
right? And so yeah. maybe that's too well. The fact that they were top threeing consistently, if not winning every event, is wild. Obviously, a very good warband, and they have great consistency in Nemesis because their faction cards are very, very powerful and consistent. So I like the idea of toning it down. And you're right in that the net effect is probably just a change to the stagger, right? Because as soon as a changer goes down, it doesn't really matter. I don't know. Maybe it just yeah. makes it more open for your opponent in terms of counterplay. The the biggest change is going to be in round two or potentially round three, if you have exactly three changers left. Because before it was because you inspire, stagger, guard, push. And if you have three changers left, a lot of times what you want to do is like inspire one that needs to be inspired for purposes of inspiration, and then stagger one that's going to be relatively safe so you don't have to like get killed with it, and then you guard whatever one is out front. A lot of times what's going to happen now is that one that's out front is going to get staggered instead of guarded. So it's like, you know, a lot of times it'll be like, I've got inspired Spawn Maw out there, I'm going to inspire Kindlefinger in the back to inspire my guy, but now instead of guarding Spawn Maw, that Spawn Maw is going to be staggered, which is going to make her a lot easier to kill. We'll see the net effect of this as time goes on. You know, when you have exactly two changers left, it really doesn't make a difference because the, the sequence is going to play out exactly as it did prior. And so that's not really going to matter. It's really only going to take effect, like, specifically when you have three left. And I guess in the first round when you have four, but you have much more room to play around that. So it's weird. It's interesting. I think it does tone them down quite a bit, but it doesn't, like, push them into irrelevant. And it'll depend on the situation as your game goes on. Yeah, I actually think while this does reduce their level of consistent performance, potentially, I still think they're in a great spot. They have amazing Mm -hmm. cards. They have amazing stats. and worst case scenario this warband moved from s tier to maybe top of a tier oh yeah and i think that's the the point is you never really want to nerf anything into irrelevancy you just want to make it so there's nothing that feels bad and hopefully this does that hopefully there's one more change here this is there's a lot here but basically what this change is saying is that flame spooler's warp splash ability so flame spooler's shooting attack gives a warp counter token to each fighter within one hex of the target. So it's a token that at the end of the round, they take a damage or start our next round, or at the start of the next round, they take a damage. Basically, the change says that that damage happens, that counter applies the damage, regardless of whether Flame Spooler is dead or not, because technically before, if you killed Flame Spooler, that ability was on their card, and therefore the, the counters would have no effect if Flame Spooler was dead. Now it basically says if you hit somebody with it, they're going to take two damage whether you kill Flame Spooler or not. So technically a buff to Ephilim, but I think we will see another change of this type later on in the document about abilities still triggering whether the model died or not. So for consistency purposes. Yeah, and I think you should go ahead and cover those from, I'm assuming you mean Hedzman's Curse, just because yeah. I think both of them fall in the same bucket in terms of the discussion. Yeah, the same one is Headsman's Curse for the Sharpener of the Blade. This is the Sharpener gives a wedded counter to somebody next to them, and that increases the damage of their weapon by one for the next successful attack action. And before you could kill the Sharpener, and then those tokens did nothing, now you will still get the benefit of that wedded counter, whether the Sharpener is dead or not. Overall, I think that's good. I mean, it does remove some counterplay, obviously, because... You know, you could just like dive the sharpener and then, you know, that would change the state of the game. But the intention, I believe, was always that these things would happen regardless of being alive or not. And now 
now that's just explicitly part of the game. Yeah, and I kind of struggle with this change, actually. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but then again, I respect the thorough explanation because the rules clearly state in the rule book that fighters that are out of action cannot use any abilities, have any effects. They're just gone. They can't do anything. You can't react to them. You can't do anything. But now what we're saying is that the tokens that they're providing still exist. And so I tried to see if there was any other precedent in the rules that mentioned any fighter with any token. And the only thing that I could see was from Hrothgorn's Man Trappers, Bushwhacka. Mm. Bushwhacka's token, there's an FAQ that says it still works even when he's taken out of action. I guess the only one I can think of off the top of my head is Carthane's horn token. No, the, the horn token is on Carthane. So if he dies, Correct. it's, it's like on his card. So fighter. Yeah, it's never gone. This is a token placed on another fighter or on the board, right? Right. I don't know if I like it because the thing is, is that a way to counter what the flame spooler was doing was to kill the flame spooler. A way to counter some of the strengths that the headsman's curse were doing was to kill the sharpener of the blade, right? Now, what you're saying effectively is there is no counterplay to the flame spooler and to the sharpener of the blade, which means these effects become inherently stronger. These individual fighters become stronger and the counterplay becomes weaker. So now, headsman's curse, there's no penalty. Oh, I lost my sharpener blade. It's fine. He made the action. I'm still going to get the benefit. Before it was kill the sharpener blade so the big guy can't hit you and do large amounts of damage, but now you still can. Yeah. And it makes it easier to, of course, get that kill, which makes it easier to res and you bring back the sharpener even if he dies adjacent, which is big. I mean, really, now the only counterplay is push the sharpener before it gets a chance to make the sharpen action, which most teams can't really do push or kill i guess but like if you can't reach it or you don't have a push then yeah it's it's made headsman's stock go up quite a bit i think curse is extremely good now flame spooler is like you know this this absolutely is a bonus flame spooler is like the second worst fighter in that warband and sometimes doesn't even get to make an attack because of how the game plays out so like this is a it's an upgrade but it's not as much of an upgrade as the change is a downgrade in my opinion the change uh, sequence I think it kind of evens out for them, personally speaking. Maybe I'm biased because I'm an Ephilim's player, but that's just how I was reading into those changes. I agree. Then we've got Domitan's Storm Coven. So here's another very big one. Each fighter changed the Harness the Aether ability to read as follows. After another friendly fighter's activation, one uninspired fighter with his ability must use the reaction. Basically saying that now you can't sit on a single inspired fighter to sit around and make a reaction unless it's just the one fighter left. So you always have to change the harness the storm. You always have to change who's inspired. You always have to change who's the leader till there's one left. That's big. That That is a big way for how the game changes. And Aman, you obviously famously won with them now. And I would love to hear your feedback on how this changes your warband. This is a huge change. I think this fundamentally changes the way the warband functions. <laughs> to be honest, I liked the fact that you could choose a fighter and continue to benefit from their inspired stats. The fact that now I have to make this reaction, it is mandatory, means that protecting key fighters in key positions becomes harder to do. Now, I do think the Storm Coven generally stat check most things and are very rarely stat checked themselves. So I think maybe the team took a look at it and said, maybe they're performing too well, or maybe. 
they're too consistent. I don't think they were nearly as consistent as Pandemonium. I think the strongest interaction with Stormcoven outside of perhaps Championship, so in Nemesis, was the Forest of Frost pairing. I think Seismic Shock is very beatable, though it is still a good pairing. But I think this is a big change for Championship that affects that particular meta a lot more. Again, ultimately, like you still lose some of the flexibility with your fighters. And I am a little disappointed with this change. But I think thematically, it makes sense that the lightning cloud ahead where they're channeling their powers is consistently moving. And then eventually, you get to a convergence of play patterns where when you're the only fighter left, it doesn't matter. But I loved not having to choose to uninspire one fighter and inspire someone else. I think the intention here is that there were situations where you would just hold two back, send the inspired one forward, and it just got to do sit there and constantly act and do inspired fighter things with good stats, cast on two dice, use its spells, make shooting attack actions, and the other two were extremely safe. And that play pattern is basically gone now, which, whether that's good or not for the game, it, it remains to be seen. Now it kind of forces you to interact with all three of them from the get-go, which... If you were doing that already, you will probably won't see much of a change in this situation, but it depends. Depends. I disagree when you say not much of a change. I get the play pattern they're trying to curb. I don't think it's possible to play like that in Nemesis, if I'm being honest. So again, I think this is more of a championship platform, at least to consistently win, because mm. if you send one four fighter forward and you give your opponent a free kill, potentially, if the dice don't work out... I just like the fact that whether I was the beatdown or not, I was effectively operating them as a squad. But there are certain moments now where like, I'm going to have to inspire Domitan. Right. And maybe I didn't want to. Maybe he has one wound left. right? I don't want to inspire him because he's going to die and now I have to give up two bounty versus one. And I think that doesn't feel nice as a player who really enjoyed the skill expression of choosing when or when not to react. Again, I don't think that they were overperforming in Nemesis. I think just paired with Force of Frost, with Force of Frost mainly being the issue with this specific pairing, but I think this is also a championship thing, and so I get it. I'm not playing Storm Coven anymore, so I'm not too <laughs> bummed out by it, but I also think this fundamentally changes the way they play when all three fighters are on the board, and now your opponent can better target which fighters they want to take out, knowing that you have to uninspire the fighter that may be doing the most at the moment if that makes sense yeah it makes it really risky right because like if you inspire sarpon and you charge four to get that nice three damage attack you your opponent knows he'll be in uninspired immediately afterwards so he might hit somebody for three he might kill something but now he's down to one block immediately afterwards and that is a much riskier thing to do i agree i think it's a big change i think the issue with nemesis is not necessarily i mean their stats like you said are great they could stat check a lot of stuff the issue with the Force of Frost pairing heavily is that just that their cards are extremely good and their deck is very powerful. So this doesn't net, I mean, it affects it because, you know, it makes them weaker. So having a strong deck doesn't matter as much when your stats are a little harder to bring to bear, let's say. But we'll see how it affects both formats. I, I think obviously this is a big nerf, whether it brings them down to, I don't think it brings them down to uselessness, but much like Ephilim, I think it brings them from S to A. And that's probably good, but whether you think they were an S in the first place is subjective. So I just think they were really cool play patterns where you could choose to not inspire 
and keep someone inspired. And then knowing that maybe you have to make suboptimal actions with another fighter because you want to keep one particular fighter inspired. So that seems a little unfortunate. I get in a Nemesis format, they can't really do much to limit the pairing of Force of Frost and Storm Coven. So I guess upon further reflection, this is also a way to weaken them in Nemesis. Yes. This essentially makes them easier to kill because they go to one block. Now, the most common pairing, again, is Force of Frost, and there's a lot of cards that can get you to two block because it modifies their defense characteristic. So I think that's fine. I think maybe once I play it more, if I were to continue playing them, I think maybe after a while, I think it would feel fine. It just takes away consistency, which perhaps is the point. Yeah, and it definitely changes the play pattern. So maybe that that's also the point to just be like, we didn't like this play pattern. Let's see what happens now with this version of the Warband. So we'll see. Yeah. I just don't think Storm Coven performed nearly as well as Pandemonium did over the course of this whole year in terms of tournaments. So I wonder if Storm Coven is just paying the price for Force of Frost. I think that's probably the case. Like, I don't think this nerf would ever have happened if they were still a, a Seismic Shock pairing. Because like they're solid with Seismic Shock, it's good. You could probably win a tournament. You could probably win Worlds with them in Seismic Shock. But like with Force of Frost, it is way strong. It's like head and shoulders stronger. And they don't have any other sort of document for Nemesis to be like, hey, you can't do this pairing. Or like, here's a can't handicap if you do this type of pairing. We're not doing that with Nemesis, at least at the moment. So the only way to directly affect the power levels in Nemesis is to hit faction cards like this. And that's... That's kind of a feature of this format, I think. Yes, indeed. So I think it's fine. I mean, I know that most people will be celebrating this, and I think if it leads to a healthier community and maybe more options, absolutely. Do I still think someone can just take Force of Frost Storm come into event and just absolutely dominate with Domitan? Absolutely. It's in the oh, game. Yeah. Well, we'll see the outcome of that, but we've got uh, our next change here is for Scabix Plague Pack. Little Scritter, our little rat friend, can no longer be dealt damage by pings. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You just can't take damage from gambits anymore. So the little rat that can continues to do so. He's not going to get spelled or damaged off the board in any way. Yes, and I appreciate them making the note for both inspired and uninspired sides. I think it's fine. I think it makes sense. It makes it to where the plague pack can still do what they want to do without having a non- reactive way to compete with just take a damage huzzah you know which i certainly appreciate still can get hammer tided though but i guess that's an action versus a card yeah and well then you're using it as a shield which is kind of the point of it and i think it was just like incidentally dying to avalanche or wound the realm or the one temptation from thricefold that i'm forgetting that deals damage to everybody adjacent can't remember the name of it so I think it was just like incidentally dying to those cards and it always felt bad, but now it doesn't. So that is, that's overall good. So we already talked about the Headsman's Curse. Universal Void Cursed Thralls plot card. Change the third sentence on this card to say, Void Cursed Fighters cannot make actions other than move actions, attack actions, stun actions, barge super actions, and charge super actions. It added stun and barge on here, which is kind of nice. I mean, it just gives you more options. And it updated the wording for barge and charge to be super actions because technically it still said charge action on there and there's no such thing as a charge action anymore. So just clarifying and actually slightly buffing Void Curse Thralls by allowing stuns and barges, which is, I don't know how often people make the stun action, but 
you can now. Now we've got Sons of Velmorn changes. Velmorn, King Morlach Velmorn has gotten yet another buff in the last edition, or in the last edition of this document. Basically, it said rather than command counters being given after an activation, they were given at the start of the round. Now you are given command counters both at the start of the round and at the end of any of Velmorn's activations. So you'll start with support, which is great, and you will be able to get more command counters as the turn goes on, which is really good because now it makes cards that use command counters really, really easy to use and consistent, as well as giving you that early support in the first couple activations. So I think this is a great change. I think it's a great change. You know, basically, you just get an extra counter at the beginning of each round. I think that's totally fine. I still think that the Warband is quite dice dependent. So Mm -hmm. that's going to be a particular challenge in terms of combat. But in terms of the way that their deck should score, it feels like this will help it become a little bit more consistent, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Inspire still requires crits, and they're still fairly dicey, but it's a nice boost, and I hope they do better. They're pretty good with Void Curse Thralls, actually. Next, we've got Grizel's Aranai. This is another big one. Change the acrobatic ability to read as follows. When this fighter is dealt damage by attack action, reduce that damage by one to a minimum of zero for each dodge in the defense roll. You can just be potentially immune to attacks if your dice go well. I think this is particularly interesting. So the Air and I are kind of in this weird situation where they're borderline competitive with breakneck slaughter. And there are some matchups where if dice favor you, you can just dominate your opponent in Nemesis. And now what you've done is you've changed it to where you're leaning into the dice a little bit more defensively. If you can roll those dodges, bro, your fighters maybe can just not take damage or survive just enough to get that one more attack in or that second attack in. So I actually think this is a massive change. This I is huge. So I mean, it they are they're like casino warband it like completely now cuz it's like you got to get in and deal damage and hopefully the dice are on your side and if you roll a number of dodges, you just win the game. So it's uh it's pretty crazy, I think. One in six chance, so it's not something you can bank on. I suppose it's the nature of the beast with them and Wormspat is you can't count on it, but when it happens, it's really nice. Mm. The thing is, is that you probably want to bank some more rerolls now in your defense dice, maybe tech for that more, or go for cards that give you more rerolls, because this will really, really help. Yeah, it does. And, you know, unlike unlike Wormspat, Wormspat all start on one block. These guys, all these gals, I should say, all start on two dodge, so... It's one in six, but you've got two chances for it. And that, you know, it, if you roll a crit, great, you're probably stopping the attack anyway. If you roll a dodge, you're reducing the damage. Whereas Wormspat was like, one dice until they get inspired is a little bit less reliable. But man, I don't know. I think, uh, I think if you're just willing to just be like, YOLO, I'm going to roll dice until I win, they, they might just do it, man. I think they might just do it. I think you said this in the Aranite chat. I was looking over this yesterday, but you were like, now when the dice pop off, they really pop off. And I think that's so astute. But the girls weren't bad. No, not the at all. I. And now I think they're a sleeper pick. I don't think people realize how strong this actually is. And there are going to be games where they absolutely dominate. And it's kind of exciting and I think scary in the hands of someone who knows how to play them. 
and the dice abide a little bit. What it means is that you're going to have to overkill because, you know, especially in especially in the current meta where there's a lot of ping cards in the game, you would just a lot of times be like, oh, I'm going to hit you with a one damage attack because they're mostly two wounds. Hit you with one damage attack, hit you with a direct damage card, and then you're dead. Now, if I go for that one damage attack, it's like, well, you might miss and I might just make it zero. And then your your pink card, your spell, your quick roots, whatever, your flame wisps, whatever you're going to be playing, it's not going to kill me. And that's like a massive swing, honestly. So I, I, I we'll see the impact of it. I think you're going to see a lot of the Aranai at tournaments in the future. Yeah, I think they're going to be pretty popular. I think stocks are up for sure. But we have one more change for the previous season, which is Tangle Briar. This is the card from Fearsome Fortress. It used to say, put down a snare hex. There's no more snare hexes. Now it says, place a feature token in the same sort of location near No Man's Land. The hex that contains that token is a snare hex in addition to other hex types. This effect persists until the end of the round. So now you can either put down a cover that is a snare for the entire round, or you can put down a blocked. And that actually makes Tanglebriar a really good card because being able to put down a blocked when you want to is great. Being able to put down a cover that you could potentially utilize because you don't, I don't believe you get staggered if it, you're in the hex when you put it down. So you could just drop a cover under your feet and then have cover, or you could use a block to move block movement in line of sight. It becomes a really flexible card. And I think factions that like Fearsome Fortress are going to love this card. Yeah, I agree. We have one more change that is kind of alongside what we were talking about before, Skittershank's Claw Pack, Creepkin Whispers, Barb's reaction to his re- attack action. This is where if it's successful, you put a counter on the enemy, and then the next time they take a move action, they take damage. This also works if Creepkin Whisper gets taken out of action. So much like the changes to the Sharpener and to Flame Spooler, the counters, do, the counters have the ability now instead of Creep himself. So everything we've said about those applies here. I agree. Exile Dead. So an update for this warband, Dentalos. They've changed the word on dance, the dance dynamic. Basically now it includes actions and super actions as long as the super action is the scything attack action. Again, there was like a little bit of weird thing now that like super actions and actions are very strongly defined against each other where technically you couldn't make, you couldn't use the dance to make the scything attack action on your conductive zombies now you can it specifically says hey you can make a super action as long as it's a scything attack action and you've chosen to attack as part of the dance so it hasn't really changed it functions the way it did before they've just updated the wording to be consistent with the new core rules and then we have prentice markov basically this says they've changed puppeteer that regulus and markov can each make an action or super action during puppeteer other than puppeteer itself so Again, good change with the clarity to actions and super actions. There was a weird thing where Regulus couldn't charge as part of Puppeteer. He could only move or attack. Now he can charge as intended. So that's very cool. We've got some minor buffs here for Kagra's Ravagers. Uh, we've changed the Inspire condition to read, there are two or more Desecration tokens on the battlefield. Don't remember what the exact wording on this was before, but this is now just better. So it's easier to get Inspired. And then both Kragan and Razek, the Despoil ability happens immediately after the final power step in the round instead of at the end of the round. So Desecration tokens happen 
before scoring, which may have been how it was, but they've, I think they've just clarified the window with this. I apologize to listeners. I haven't played as or against Ravagers in like two years, so I, I'm a little rusty on the specifics of what this change does. It doesn't really do much, if I'm being honest, Zach. It just adds more clarity. Mm. Like the errata was previously a beta rule, so right. they just made it formal. But aside from that, it's not really doing, it's a very minor change. And I think the intent is to bring clarity rather than a true buff. And then Thorns of the Briar Queen, we've changed Varklav's action, the push action to say, choose one or more friendly chain rasps, push them up to two hexes. It's the same thing, except now it clarifies that you can choose to, instead of pushing certain chain rasps zero, now you just choose one or more. So if there's a chain rasp you don't want to push, you just don't choose it. It's very straightforward. Yeah, that's the end of the document. So overall, just quality of life changes. Um, I think it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate them attempting to add clarity, especially with warbands that are particular or specific or perhaps even a little more complicated like the Ravagers. Ultimately, good things. I mean, they're reading the questions, they're answering them, and they're improving upon warbands that people feel like need help. And so I'm hoping that we can see some of those warbands more. Let's see what happens in terms of the power change. And we'll talk about winners and losers in the Nemesis and Champions format. But we've got one more document to go. When building decks with warbands, specifically the war- the Forest Riders and the Spokal Guard, you cannot use any of their old cards anymore. They have pre-constructed rivals decks. So those are the only faction cards available to those warbands and are valid in this format. If you want to play like True Relic, you can use whatever you want. I think this makes sense. I think there's great clarity here. They decided to redo the Warband, so they're going to use the new cards that are associated around those Warbands. Moving over to Universal Objectives cards, we see Bitterstorm finally make the list. I think this makes complete sense. It's an exact duplicate of a faction objective that Domitan has that was also previously restricted. So I think. Maybe people are tired of seeing Domitan do really well in championship and they're trying to rein them in. Domitan was particularly very strong in championship due to all the ping damage, which we're going to see that power shift a little bit now based on some of the other cards here. But Bitterstorm, totally, totally fine. I'm not mad about it. Going on to universal power cards here. Arcane Sensitivity is the first card. Reaction after this fighter casts a spell, push the fighter one hex. This was being used quite often in the Storm Coven and in the Pandemonium. So the fact that you do not just get Mega Mobile Fighter, who's already doing and benefiting a lot from casting spells to continue to benefit, I think makes total sense. Wizards in general were very good. Ping was very good. I mean, it's Dom 10 specifically. One of the big issues specifically is that neither Force of Frost nor Seismic Shock is plot locked. So for wizard-focused warbands like them, like Ephilim, like some others, it was very easy to take the plot deck of your choice and then just every good wizard card that you wanted out of the two wizard decks. So maybe if one of them had a plot, we would see it would feel a little bit differently because it would feel a little bit more restricted. But as it is, I see why these are making the restricted list, just because they were easy to take. So yeah. Absolutely. And a theme we're going to see on this list is that they just pretty much restricted almost every pin card possible, <laughs> which I think makes sense. I think the heavy-handed approach was perhaps necessary given the fact that Domitan was doing so much consistent ping damage in the championship format. And it's not just Damaton, it's Pandemonium as well. And so maybe there's this 
sense of tiredness of seeing these two warbands be so successful in their different formats and their level of consistency, which I think is fine. But just to go through some of these really quickly, Bursting Power is Paths of Prophecy. So Zach just mentioned combining non-plot locked cards with plot cards just seemed a bit silly. And so that's a ping damage. Final Curse, we talked about ping damage. Freeze Thaw Finish, ping damage. Frostworm Cloak is damage reduction which is very important. It also interacts with ice counters, so we can see why that's restricted as well. The next card, Guided by Fate, is an upgrade. This is plus one dice to fighter attack actions if the fighter and or the target is on a feature token. Plus one dice cards are always restricted in championship, so I think this is very normal. This is fair. Hidden layer, pick one objective in the same hex as an enemy fighter. The objective cannot be held. <laughs> the effect persists until the end of the round or until the objective marker is flipped. That's pretty pretty nuts in terms of just stopping scoring and can definitely feel like it's a feels bad any comments there well the comment would be in also in relation to some of the stuff that came off because they removed claim the prize from the restricted list that is no longer restricted uh as another good hold objective card and i think they kind of realized that aggro is really outpacing hold objective in the metagame so things like hidden lair being unrestricted and things like claim the prize being restricted made it so like hey hold objective is already not that good and then also one of the best hold objective objectives is restricted and also this card that stops you from being able to hold objectives you could just take and it probably just made a lot of feel bad moments so i see what they're doing indeed indeed now moving on launch of attack another gambit unplot locked deck Mm -hmm. and this one beast bound assault and then the last card is Reckless Pact. This one's really interesting because this is dice manipulation. At bare minimum, it's like if you're a Zinch fighter, so Pandemonium, you just get an additional reroll. Even if you take zero damage, you just get one reroll on your defense, which is really good for Ephilim himself, as well as Changers later in the game. Yep. And then, of course, the fact that you can take damage and reroll even more dice. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So I think a lot of this, these changes in this episode that they made in general is just trying to take down the level of magic, specifically Pandemonium and Domitan, which is a little unfortunate because Zach and I, we were talking briefly before about how magic was so strong that they shied away from it for a while, and then they reintroduced magic. They made the exact same mistakes, and then they're like, oh, it's not good enough. And I really think magic is a very integral part of Warhammer. It's super important in all of the settings, especially in Age of Sigmar. And you need magic, but you need to make the spells worth it. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't mean making them deal damage. They can do other things. They can do movement manipulation. They can do condition stacking, like stagger or giving rerolls. They can do some cool stuff. But if you make everything do this damage, do this damage, do this damage, then it's always going to be oppressive. And so it's a little unfortunate. You know, I think I'd seen some thoughts that the ping meta wasn't all too bad, but clearly the designers think otherwise because they just hit every ping card ever. Yeah, and I think you're right that there's plenty of room for them to include magic without it being oppressive. I mean, if you look at like Celestial Blades and Domitan, getting rerolls is huge, and getting rerolls on a pretty easy to cast card is awesome. But like, awesome. that card doesn't feel oppressive. When it goes off, your opponent's like, ah, man, that's crazy. But like, you know, it's usually just for one charge, maybe for a couple attacks if you get the charge token thing off. There's Field of Change in FLM where it's you get rerolls on defense dice for changers. And that's really powerful because it keeps your little guys alive, especially when some of them are like two dice block or two dice guard or something. 
And that card's really good, but it's not restricted because it doesn't feel oppressive. It's still dicey. It's like dice fixing, but it's still pretty dicey and you got to get the spell cast and all this stuff. And, you know, neither of those cards deal damage, but they're still integral parts of those decks. And they don't bring the same level of like, oh, you cast a spell, I lost a dude. You know, that it's, there's room for them to make these spells. And I just hope that going forward, we're not just going to see them reprint more ping damage spells and just force them to get restricted anyway. I agree. I think if you want to make spells that deal damage, you have to make them in a way in which they cannot be stacked with other spells. Yeah, absolutely. If that means making cards that work, particularly when it says, if your deck contains no other cards, maybe it could be a spell like this. This spell does this. If your deck contains cards from no other rivals decks then gain an additional ability maybe or like it could interact with a plot card or something like that i think the change to avalanche made it really nice where it's like now you need these counters and it's like yeah it doesn't specifically say you have to be playing purely force of frost but like you kind of have to be because you need those counters and if there was counters it like the there's the pink card in toxic terrors where it's like you roll number of dice equal to the number of poison gambits you've played and it really only works if you're playing a lot of poison gambits. And then it's a pretty good damage card. But like, you're never just going to slap that in a deck because you don't have all that poison stuff to, to support it. So I, I think you're right that they could just print cards that have more of a restriction to a mechanic. And then it would feel it would feel it would at least feel different. You know? Yeah, I think the Force of Frost Avalanche example is a good one. I don't know if it necessarily needs to be like a resource mechanic every single time, but making these spells function in a manner that is elegant, like the avalanche change, is important because that's where the balance comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Last card here on the universal restricted cards is Sorcerer's Might upgrade. This fighter's spell attack actions have Grievous 1. This card cannot affect attack actions of the damage characteristic of 3 or greater. Again, they just really trying to take down the spell meta which is fine yeah it is what it is uh i mean Moving on. yeah I, I was just gonna say that like we know which two warbands are trying to hit it's a little bit of a shame that other warbands are getting caught in the crossfire because there's probably a lot of underperforming warbands that have wizards like nobody's complaining about complaining about Niari's purifiers nobody's complaining about like i don't know eyes of the nine but they are getting caught in the crossfire here so that's a little it's a little sad just part of how the fire works though mm-hmm Moving on, we have some faction-specific cards here, and then we'll talk about the cards that were moved from the list. Thriceful Discord lost Soul Slile Shards. When I say lost, it means it's restricted. This was a spell. Deal one damage. Bolt of Zinch is one from Pandemonium. Again, spell. Deal one damage. Master of Ancient Lore for Domitan is an upgrade, and what this was doing is that it was giving you the ability to draw through your card or your decks faster when your opponent was playing a gambit. I don't know why this was made, actually. I mean, maybe it just helps with cycling through your deck faster and getting more gambits ping damage. Yeah. But I didn't think, actually, this was pretty bad because it was just one use. And to be honest, like, waiting for a spell, maybe your opponent doesn't play a spell and you just lose out on a draw entirely. So I don't know why this one got restricted, if I'm being completely honest, but I guess they really wanted to make a point by hitting Domitan, which I guess is fine. There's been warbands that have been hit repeatedly in the past to emphasize that they're trying to reduce their power level. And again, this is just for championship. So if nerfing Domitan means championship is a more 
healthy environment, then great. I'm all for it. Yeah, I think a lot of times some of the changes are more of a, we hear you and we're really going to correct the things that you guys are talking about. They get a lot of stuff in their emails. They read the social media. They they get feedback from players at events and stuff. And if the players at events are sh- coming up to the judges and they're like, oh man, freaking Ephilim and Domitan, man, I don't know what to do about it. Then maybe they've just heard it enough and they want to, to overcorrect in one direction or another. And you know, there's a lot of game design discussion that goes into that, but it's at least nice to know that people are being heard and whether some of these changes get toned down or reverted in the future, maybe we'll see what happens down the line. Yeah. Now, I do appreciate them also maybe improving the stock of some more bands in championship, in particular, the Grimwatch and the Starblood Stalkers got the Great Plan and Shifting Madness respectively removed from the list. I think this is fine. Starboard stalkers are in an environment right now where it's tough being a horde warband. And even with some of these restrictions to Domitan, I still think that their biggest issue is that stuff just dies. And this helps them maybe offset some of that glory loss with their probably their most powerful card with the Grimwatch. I think this is fine too. It gives them a little bit of early seed glory. And as a horde warband in a elite warband favored meta, I think they probably need some help. The only yeah. other card removed off the list two cards actually were claim the prize and healing potion healing potion i think is fine it now doubly punishes people for taking ping damage so now not only do you have less options for ping damage but when you take the ping damage people are just going to heal that up at least one if not two in some instances depending on a dice roll i don't really have any thoughts towards claim the prize one way or another i think it's fine i mean zach i don't know if you have particular thoughts but like uh, I mean, probably needs help. It, it does. And I think that's the reason this came off. I think there's probably a world where claim the prize it like they were like, ooh, a three glory for just hold two, which is what it often is. They were like, oh, that's like that's like really good. That's probably too good for hold objective. And it like it probably elicited feelings of like dominant position, but stronger because it's three glory. But honestly, just like holding objective doesn't really have that much play in the metagame right now in either format so yeah just just let them have just let hold objective people have a good three glory end phase man so i'm, I'm glad they did that yeah and again this is all championship right and i know the championship is more popular over in europe and online and i'm really happy for those individuals who are participating and partaking in that meta and i hope that these changes do you the joy and the balance that you so craved i think it's hard for me to feel much more than that towards the changes because specifically the World Championships of Warhammer is Nemesis. Yeah, and all the qualifier events that you and I are going to be attending here in the States are all also Nemesis for the most part. I mean, I don't know any that are championship. I haven't heard of any that are going to be, so I agree. It's hard for me to get super enthused. Like, I'm going to LVO. I'm going to Adepticon. They're both Nemesis, so I'm reading through these, and I'm like, oh, this would be cool if I was playing championship. And it looks like a good update. Like you said, I'm happy for people who are happy with it. Maybe if we start to run championship events again, I'll we'll sit down and do a big, big read through and summation of the far list and whatnot. But for right now, it's a little bit outside my wheelhouse, I would say. Agreed. And that leads us to the final part where we talk about stocks up and stops down. So in the Nemesis format, I think it's very safe to say, obviously, that is our focus now, given that the ultimate way to compete for this game is Nemesis, right? According to James Workshop. That obviously stocks down a little bit on Pandemonium. I still think that they're one of the best warbands in the format. I still think they're A tier. 
I think maybe some of their play patterns are a little bit more interactive, but at the end of the day, that Warband can still outscore you and still kill you because they have incredible cards and some great stats on their changers. All you're doing is maybe taking away some of the consistency with the stagger stuff, which is fine, and then maybe making some of their changers easier to hit. But the game plan is always going to be kill Ephilim, because if you don't kill Ephilim, he scores and kills you. So I don't think it changes the dynamic too much, but it curbs, I suppose, the excess, which is important. I think this change will really change your turn zero, something we talk about where it's like, Board setup and objective placement and fighter setup is going to change a lot because of how what fighters you pick gets changed. But overall, like you said, I mean, their cards are still like they still have one of the most consistent nemesis decks in the game. So that will that will not change. They will not fall into obscurity. They will simply have more counterplay. Yeah, like I would not be surprised if a pandemonium player won LVO like or any event like they're still very capable and in a great spot to win stuff. They're just not going to be as perhaps consistently podiuming, which seems like the concern. We'll see. Hmm. Stocks down also on Domitan a little bit. I still think that they're a fantastic warband and nemesis. And I said earlier in the episode, and I'll reiterate this, I still think you can take Force of Frost, Storm Coven, and do some pretty powerful things with them. What this means is that maybe you play a little bit more reserved, which is probably the intention, because you don't want your fighters to just drop down to one block but four wounds one block is still great and the moment you get your upgrades on outside of void curse thralls you're going to be two block so it's fine i i really don't see them tumbling down i still think they're an a-tier warband with force of frost and obviously with seismic shock as well actually but i don't know if this nerfs them in nemesis as much as people are hoping yeah, it, it's kind of the same for Ephilim, right? Where both the teams, they took this errata nerf to how the faction plays and how the faction plays will feel weaker, but the cards are still good. Like, Damatan is still bringing two in-faction pings and one or two from Force of Frost. They're still bringing, you know, a lot of surges that they're going to score pretty consistently. So the, the game plan for the faction is different, but the amount of glory you'll have at the end of the game is probably pretty similar. Absolutely. And I still think you can, if you really wanted to, you can hard mulligan for these turns where you can just absolutely blow up your opponent's board even early in the game. So it, it requires a little bit more of a combination setup, but you can still take a gambit. I don't remember the name. It gives your fighter ice counter and you oh, walk yeah. into enemy territory and then you spend the ice counter and you cast Abyssal's Avalanche. So there are going to be absolute games where you start with that in your hand and you can still do nutty stuff. It's just not as consistent, but I'm still happy that the play, like it's the opportunity is there. It's just the cost is a little bit more, you know? Yeah. It, you tone down. I think tone down consistency is what they want. And I mean, look, it, once you get on armor of ice and cool and calm and you know, you're getting the rerolls from your faction, the warband is going to feel like it plays the same. Like, oh no, this fighter isn't level 2 when I want them to, except I got on Armor of Ice, so they're level 2 anyway. And it's going to play the same, I think, later in the game, but like those early turns are just not going to be as the same. Yeah, I mean, you're still taking Falling Shards, so I think that just opens up Abyssal's Avalanche to occur, but I can see people just cutting Avalanche and maybe going for Time Freeze if they weren't taking Time Freeze, or maybe going for Yara's Frozen Bonds, or maybe they're concerned about 
If you're concerned about damage, you could still take... If you're like, oh, I want to drop Avalanche, but I still want another pink card, you could take Frozen to the spot. Like, if you're not already taking that, that is still... Oh, yeah. I think you should be taking that always. Probably, yeah. It's It's such a good card. It's so good. But I I didn't take Time Freeze, for example. But maybe it's like, all right, whatever. I don't need Abyssoth's Avalanche. I'll take Mazik's Malediction. I can remove an upgrade from an opponent, right? There's so many things I think that the Warband and the pairing can still do. So I'm really grateful for Games Workshop for adding the change to the errata to the way the Warband functions, but not neutering people who like to play with spells and nemesis. I think they absolutely murdered that in Championship, which is fine. Championship needs to be a little bit more brutal and a little bit more heavy-handed just because of the sheer combinations of things. Mm. But again, if someone went to LVO and just took Storm Coven with Force of Frost and won, I would not be surprised. Or Ephilim, which went down. I mean, it's kind of a... a benefit i think of nemesis where it's like you could nerf the team but it's still playable like i don't think any good team is going to go like unless they unless they completely errata a team into oblivion which they've never really done maybe Molog because he's had like three erratas to how his ability works you're never going to have a team that's like oh it won an event and now it's unplayable like that's just that's just not going to happen correct i think stocks up also for and again looking through nemesis lens let's talk about Aaron and i for a little bit i mean obviously it can be interpreted in two ways, right? Like that can be too good. That could be not good enough, or maybe it's a side grade because again, it's very dice dependent, but I think there are just going to be some really great examples, bro. Where like I took no damage from your three damage attack or your two damage attack. Yeah. I mean, it's up to you. I think a lot of top players shy away from inconsistency, shy away from dicey things like that, just because you want that consistency. You don't want a, you don't want your, like your finals, your, your game three of the finals to be like, man, if I roll a dodge here, I win. But if I don't roll a dodge here, I just die. And that's that's that. I think a lot of players don't enjoy that. But for the people who do, I think they might just lean into Aaronite now. I think it's very likely. I mean, like you said earlier, they're already on the verge of you know, being competitive. I think they have some good cards. I think Breakneck is good for them. Tooth and Claw was also pretty decent for them. But like now with Breakneck, now with this change, like You'll see them at events, and maybe they don't podium every time, but they will podium sometimes, and they might be a spoiler that just like sometimes you run into them on your way up to the top, and they just they just dice you out of the game. So that's that's crazy. I completely agree with you. I, I gotta say, stocks up on Headsman's Curse. I mean, we can't not talk about it. The Sharpener buff is just... They were already good. They were already like a good faction. Yeah. I'm actually very surprised by this because... You know, when people ask me, like, hey, I'm on, like, what do you think were the warbands you were a little afraid of with your Stormcoven build? And I said, obviously, Drom, which was proven by Willie at Worlds. Obviously, GSP, just because, like, sometimes you just can't beat dice and the dice can just get you. And they have a lot of ways to just make some of their attacks very consistent. But then also, I think Headsman's Curse. They have the ability to kill you very quickly. Mm-hmm. And now what you've done is you've taken away one of the counters that you can use to stop them from getting to early damage, and they can still get in and hit you really hard. So I think some of that counter player and skill expression is lost, and George has been a big proponent for Headsman's Curse, and I think I agree with him, and I'm very excited to see how they perform, given the fact that I already thought that they were a top contender and potentially a great meta and anti-meta pick, and now they just got better. Yeah, I mean, it can't be understated that their their rivals deck, like we talk about Ephilim and Damatan having really good decks, like 
Headsman's Curse deck is really good, man. Like it scores super consistently, and it has like every object or every upgrade in that deck. Nearly every upgrade, maybe not every single one. Nearly every one is insane. At least when you can put it on your leader. And they don't have the downside that most big guy warbands have, which is that when you kill the big guy, the whole thing falls apart. Because like the bearer of the block is a good backup piece. So it's I. I would not. I was surprised to not see them at Worlds. I would not be surprised to see them a lot at the next several qualifier events. Oh, for sure. I think they have a very good opportunity to do well. Mm. And I'm excited to see how and if they will do well. Do you think the change to Skritter is enough to make Rats a viable pick? No. I like the change to Skritter. I think it's fine. I think my challenge stems from the fact that they have weak stats and they already felt like kind of gimmicky. Mm-hmm. So I think the Warband is beautiful and I think it's fun to play, but I don't think it's one that's designed to play particularly consistently. Yeah. I mean, you really only have two fighters that are really good. And then you have three fighters that are like situationally okay. And then you have Skritter. And it's like, we've seen big number model Warbands where it's like it's kind of built around one or two fighters, but none of those Warbands particularly have performed well in the past so i think they're fine i think you probably could do well with them i wouldn't be surprised to see one podium especially since domitan is like kind of a boogeyman for them domitan got toned down a little bit so maybe you you would see them more but i would not i would not expect to see them like jump up to the top of the game yeah i would be surprised if they won anything or did podium if i'm being completely honest if not a bit harsh I know our our co-host George did pretty well with them at Nova. I mean, he didn't podium, but he got fairly high up there. It could happen in the future, but also that was that was before Death Gorge, so you know, before Force of Frost and Breakneck Slaughter, which I think are bad matchups for them in general. So maybe it's only gotten worse for them. Maybe it's maybe that's just the state of the game. Yeah, and I blame or attribute that success to George. Based on the fact that George is a very skilled player and oh, that yeah. people weren't caught on to what Void Curse Thralls could do. Yeah, absolutely. I would say stocks up for... I mean, I know it's how it was able to be played before, but now with the clarification, stocks up for Void Curse Hexbane. Like, that deck wasn't already really good. Now just being able to be like, oh, you killed my hunter, here you're Void Cursed with the, the singular reshaping just feels, just feels really, really, really powerful. And maybe you were able to do that before. I never had it come up in a game. Man, man, that team that team is good, and it only has gotten better with these changes, I think. Oh, yes. I think that's fair and valid. I'm very excited, honestly, to see how the LVO meta turns out. And we're going to do an episode to predict what the meta is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually more excited to share my thoughts. Is I won't be going, but I'll be, of course, careful to keep Follow. our secrets. Yeah. We, we have some well. internal discussions, but... Anywho, I'm very excited to see how this all pans out. But overall, Zach, what are your thoughts on these changes as a whole? I think the metagame for both Nemesis and Championship is in a better state. I think maybe there was... They could have hit things a little bit harder or made some more drastic changes. I think they are erring on the side of smaller, more consistent changes, which... That's like game design philosophy. You can go back and forth on which, which one's better. I, I do think the game is better right now. And I think that it is a change that will bring more people into the game and keep people in the game because the game just feels better at the moment. So 
Like you said, I'm really excited to see LVO. We probably won't get an update between LVO and Adepticon, so the meta we have now will probably be for Adepticon as well. And I'm very excited for that one as well. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the future of this game. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, I'm super excited that we were able to get this episode recorded and quickly so that everyone can hear our thoughts. If you're interested in listening to more of our thoughts, check out some of our previous episodes on the meta and specifically Warbands. And you can check out our written thoughts as well on pathoflorypodcast.com. Again, we really just want to thank everyone for their support and their patronism. If you are a patron for Path to Glory, I know that we're getting close to spring and we're pretty excited to see how some of the changes are going to look at Path to Glory and how the community will respond to them. Again, we've moved to Spotify as our new hosting platform. So do check out Spotify, listen to us on Spotify and fulfill some of those polls and questionnaires we have on Spotify as well. That's exciting to see your thoughts and your interactions. And overall, I think we're both all happy with this. I know Mark and George are also happy with some of these outcomes here. So looking forward to seeing how the meta evolves and progresses going into the new year. I think this is the best Christmas slash New Year's gift we could have gotten. And so until next time, thanks for listening and we wish you the best of luck on your path to glory. <laughs>